Julian I met, gosh, when I was about 14 years old. Uh, he was going on 17. He was driving a 1954. Grateful. Yeah, a long time ago. There was a long period of time that Buddy and I had just kind of gotten tired. We just kind of gave up being involved and having God in our life. He was in the back seat of our life. We didn't have him up front where he needed to be. I've just worked 50, 60, 70 hours a week. He was with IBM. He was going up that corporate ladder. And Sandy had her own her own life, so we kind of were going our separate our separate ways. I felt lonely, even though I had a loving husband. I felt empty and lonely, and I, I wanted to get back in church. I missed that. I know when I started coming to Hope on a regular basis, I remembered feeling uh, welcomed and appreciated. And I knew that I had done so many things wrong in my life. I had totally put everything to the back burner that was should have been important. And that was my beginning of going to Hope and saying, okay, maybe this is where I need to, you know, sit in and, and really start to learn more about God and, and what He is really all about. The week before Easter, uh, Mike was doing a series on marriage. I was sitting there saying to myself, I'm not really going to get anything out of this. I mean, I've been married for 54 years. We've been there, done that so many times, going through so many hard things and gotten through it. And so I was listening and he was reading out of uh, Philippians, I think it was the second chapter, about uh, God's greatest joy uh, would be for us to be like him in, in a, a gentle, humble spirit uh, and in putting others before ourselves. And it made me realize that in my journey to have a better relationship with God, that not only was I changing and becoming a little bit more like Jesus, I have a long way to go, but I was also becoming more of a servant to my husband. All of a sudden, I was overwhelmed with this feeling of being young and loving Buddy again, like I, like it used to be when I was really young, like we were first married. It's like, I almost felt like I couldn't wait to get home just to hug his neck and give him a big kiss. That's a great story, isn't it? I didn't think we were going to be able to shut Buddy up, though. I'm telling you, that's a, but uh, I'm telling you, after 11 straight days of running a fever, I am so glad to be back here with you guys this weekend. My doctor finally told me this. He said, quit shaking those people's hands. They're going to kill you over there. And so anyway, it's good to be back with you. We're in our new series that we're calling On the Road. And uh, last week we began by talking about, part of this, this series is based on a study we did a few years ago as a congregation, the Reveal Study, where we participated 525 churches across the country, 180,000 people actually took the survey, and we'll put that slide up, but it basically said that if you attend church, you fall into one of four groups, one of four categories. The very first one we talked about was exploring God. You're not a Christian. You don't even pretend to be a Christian, right? You're just not there yet. You're here. You're kicking the tires. You're checking things out. You're considering having a relationship with God, but you're not there yet. And by the way, if you fall into that category, let me just tell you, you are my favorite. Okay, just so you know, you're my favorite group, group and I'm so glad that you guys are here. The second group are those of you who are beginning your relationship with God. In other words, you came to that critical moment in your life when you realized, wow, I do need a Savior. 
And the realization hit you that Jesus Christ came to this earth to be our Savior. And he died on the cross so that your sins could be forgiven. So that you could be reconciled back into a relationship with God. You accepted that free gift of salvation. And now maybe you're just a few weeks old or a few months old. But you're in that beginning stage of that relationship with God. Some of you are growing. You're growing with God. Maybe you've been a Christian six months, six years, 60 years, but you've been on that journey. And as you look in the rearview mirror, you can see that God has actually changed your life. There's transformation taking place. You don't trust God 100%, but you're growing in that trust relationship every day. And then there's some of you here this weekend, you're God-centered. In other words, you are just all in. And we talked about the fact that the key word that seems to move us from one stage to the next is the word trust. And we looked at it from a relational perspective. For example, in the exploring God uh, category, uh, Jesus, a God is a stranger. You've heard about him. He's out there somewhere, but he's not even an acquaintance. He's a stranger. But when you move into the beginning God stage, all of a sudden God is a friend. He's not a great friend. You don't know him that well. You don't trust him a lot, but he's a friend. He's no longer seen as an enemy. As you begin to grow with God, he becomes your good friend. You want to talk to him. You want to ask him questions. You want to know how he feels about certain things that are going on in your life. And again, you may not trust him completely, but you're trusting him more and more. But by the time you get to God-centered, you'd say, you know, I totally trust God with my life. I totally trust God. And trust is the key because as our trust in God grows, our relationship with God grows. As our trust with God deepens, our relationship with God deepens. And you say, wow, whatever happens in my life, I totally trust God. I got to tell you, we lost one of our great, great heroes around Hope Friday night. Mike Shook is one of our volunteers who has played such a key role uh, and us being able to purchase the building for Ship of Zion in downtown Raleigh. He was right in the middle of that, negotiating it, making it happen. Uh, the galley grocery store that we were able to open as a congregation, you saw, you saw somebody been in Luke. Mike was right in the middle of that. He was making it happen. He just served relentlessly. And Friday evening, he had a massive heart attack, and God took him home. And our hearts are very, very sad. And I was talking with Tan, his, his new widow, this morning. And as we were talking... And we were crying together because, man, we lost a good one. And she lost an incredible husband who loved her so much. And in our conversation, even as she was grieving, she said, but you know what, Mike? God is so good. She's more spiritual than I am because I said, yes, he is good. But I don't know why I took Mike. I could have recommended about 12 people at Hope who do absolutely nothing. So it is fortunate for you, and you know who you are, a lot more than 12. God doesn't really ask my opinion. But as I listened to this grieving widow in the middle of this conversation say, you know what, Mike? God is still so good. You know what she was saying? I totally trust God with my life. Let me just ask you a question. How would your life be different if you totally, 100% trusted God? I mean, when things are not going your way, you still have unshakable confidence in God. When your prayers aren't getting answered the way you want them to get answered, you still have confidence in God. When you didn't get that job you really, really needed, right, you still have confidence in God. When you didn't get the promotion, you still have confidence in God. When your kids aren't turning out the way you thought they were going to turn out, you still have confidence in God. What if your response was always, God is in control and he is going to work this out?
What if your mindset was, God just has a way of leveraging bad for good. We're just going to have to sit back and wait to see what God is going to do. I trust him. He is in control. I mean, let me ask you a question. If that is really the way you viewed life, if that's the way you had your relationship with God, would things be different in your life? Well, if you read the Bible, it's pretty clear that's what God wants to do in all of our lives. That's where he wants to take us. He wants to establish that kind of relationship of trust and confidence because if we have trust and confidence in God, what you need to understand is that eventually that trust and confidence, it begins to seep into every area of our life. And as it begins to seep into all the areas of our lives, we begin to change and we begin to see life differently. When it begins to seep in our our lives, as our trust and confidence goes up, see, we begin to see relationships. The way we see them, we'll see them differently. We'll see tragedy from a different perspective. We'll view relationship and and, and prosperity and morality and ethics. Everything will be uh, viewed from a different perspective. So you got to understand, once we begin that beginning relationship, growing relationship, becoming God-centered, God is in the process of trying to grow and develop this trust, this dependency in him. Now, that's what we're talking about in this series. How does God actually do that? This week, we're going to see how God uses the application of the Bible, the application of his word to move us along in that process. By the way, let me just say this, and I'm not trying to be critical of other churches. But a lot of churches around us, a lot of churches throughout the U.S., they seem to be content just teaching the Bible. They seem to be content just covering the material. They seem to be content just making sure that when you show up at church, you leave with more knowledge than you had when you came in. And I get that. I'll be honest with you. For years, that's how I taught. I brought this up here. This is my series in the book of Acts that I did a few years ago. It took me two years. Every every verb is parsed. Every Greek word is explained. And I'm telling you, for two years, I taught the book of Acts. And at our church, it was like going through a seminary class. But what I noticed is people were coming really, really smart, but they didn't see a hold of life change taking place. But then one day, something changed. I got invited to go to a seminar in Indiana. When you're in Southern California, you don't want to go to Indiana. But I went to Indiana in February, and it was 8 degrees, and it was snowing sideways. I just remember that, right? And it was called the Law of Application. And the instructor who was leading this seminar, it was about 300 pastors, he asked us in preparation to bring some sermon notes, some outlines, some manuscripts that we had preached. And once we got there, uh, he began to explain what we were going to be doing a little bit. So he said, I want you to take out your notes from one of your sermons, take two different color highlighters, and I want you to go through and I want you to highlight everything that's teaching in that message. And then I want you to highlight everything in a different color that's application. So we sat down and we went page by page. And what we learned, about 300 pastors... 95% of what we shared was teaching. About 5% was application. And then he asked us to break up into groups of four, and he gave us some manuscripts of the book of Romans. And he says, I want you to do the same thing with the book of Romans, because think about it, the book of Romans is recognized as the most doctrinal of all books in the New Testament. But if you go through and highlight everything where Paul was teaching, and then you highlight everything where Paul was applying what he taught, it was actually... 50% teaching, 50% application. Well, then if you go to the Gospels and you study the life of Jesus, you discover that when Jesus taught 20% knowledge, right, 20% teaching, 80% application. 
So you understood when Jesus stood before people and when he opened the Old Testament, when he opened those scrolls, which was what he had available, when he began to teach, it was different. Jesus taught a little bit of knowledge and he taught a whole lot of application, a whole lot about obedience, not just knowledge. And it's because Jesus understood the importance of applying what you learn. Because he understood when you begin to apply what the Bible teaches, that is when your life actually begins to change and you begin to move through those four circles. Let me show you what I'm talking about. I want us to look at a great Old Testament story that shows us just how important it is that we actually act on what God says, what we learn. If you have your Bible, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5. And let me just give you a little bit of background as we jump into our story. The scene that we're looking at took place in Israel, and it's a time in Israel's history when God spoke through men that were known as prophets. The Bible was not written. The Bible was still being lived out. And so when God needed to deliver a message to the people, he spoke through a prophet, and that prophet spoke for God. The prophet in our story is Elisha, not to be confused with Elijah, but I just confused you. But it doesn't really matter. It's Elisha. He's the prophet, but he's not the main character. The main character in the story this weekend is a man named Naaman. He's a Jew. He's not not a Jew. He's not from Israel. He's actually from Aram, which was known as Syria. And Naaman is a proud, accomplished military man. And I'm sure he was wealthy, and I'm sure he had a lot of prestige. But life was not perfect because somewhere on his journey of life, he discovered that he had leprosy. Now, we don't hear a lot about leprosy anymore. It's pretty much been wiped out. There are still a few pockets in the world where people experienced leprosy. But Paul Brand was a doctor who used to deal with leper victims. He writes this, For years leprosy has provoked a fear bordering on hysteria, mainly because of the horrible disfigurement that may result if it goes untreated. The noses of leprosy victims shrink away. Their earlobes swell. Over time, they lose fingers and toes, hands and feet. Most go blind. Along with the disfigurement, there is also isolation. In biblical days, they were seen as outcasts. There's a verse here he quotes from Leviticus 13. As for the leper, his clothes shall be torn and the hair of his head shall be uncovered. And he shall cry, unclean, unclean. Literally, if a leper was walking down the street and you were walking toward him, his obligation was to get off the path and yell out and warn you, unclean, unclean, unclean. And that way the traveler was able to make sure that the leper was way out of the way before they even passed. It goes on to say, he shall remain unclean all the days which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Numbers chapter 4 says, Command the sons of Israel that they send away from camp every leper. You shall send them outside the camp. Understand that was the life of the leper. Well, he has leprosy. And we have no idea how Naaman responded, how he reacted the morning. Maybe he was, he was taking his morning bath in the river when he realized he saw that first spot. And he realized, oh man, I have leprosy. But I can guarantee you this, it changed everything. And I can also guarantee you that all of his accomplishments in battle and all the medals that hung from his chest, they didn't mean anything anymore. But out of the blue, just the way God sometimes works, There's this little servant girl in the story that comes across Naaman's path, verse 2 of 2 Kings chapter 5. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel. So understand Aram and Israel, they're enemies, okay? She served Naaman's wife. 
She said to her mistress, this servant girl, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria. Okay, she knows who Elijah is. She's heard of him. So it says in verse 3, she said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him. He would cure Naaman of his leprosy. And you'd better believe that when Naaman's wife heard this little tidbit of information, she went straight to her husband. And they probably had a conversation that went something like this. Hey, honey, I was talking to my maid today, and she says that she knows someone over in Israel. We don't know him, but evidently he's some kind of miracle worker, some kind of witch doctor or something. But she says if you can get over to Israel and you can hook up with this guy, you can connect with this guy, he will heal you. And so Naaman goes to the king of Aram. His name is Ben-Hadad. And he tells him what his wife's maid has said. And notice how the king responds in verse 5. By all means, go. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Now, remember, they're enemies. In those days, there were no passports. There were no visas. So if you wander into enemy territory without a reason to be there, it's a good, it's a good chance you're going to go home that evening without your head. Okay, leprosy or not, right? And so he says, I'm going to give you a letter to explain why you're in Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver. Today, that's about a half million dollars worth of silver. 6,000 shekels of gold, so about $4 million worth of gold. And I don't know why he threw this in, but 10 sets of clothing. So he got all the silver, he got all the gold, he went down to the men's warehouse, got 10 of their finest suits, right? Packs it up in a U-Haul and heads off to Israel. Verse 6, the letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Signed, in best regards, Ben-Hadad, right? And according to verse 7, when the king of Israel gets this letter, he freaks out. Look what it says. He tore his clothes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? Who can cure leprosy? Nobody can be cured of leprosy. And then he comes to the conclusion, I know what's going on. It's pretty obvious. He's trying to pick a fight with me. He's trying to pick a quarrel with me. So the king of Israel is thinking, this guy Naaman, he's going to come down here to get cured. We're not going to be able to cure him. He's going to go back. He's going to go before Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad is going to be all excited. He's going to say, how did it go? And about that time, Naaman's nose or his ear is going to fall off. And he's going to say, what do you think, right? And the king's going to be so ticked off that Naaman didn't get cured. He's going to come over here and he's going to start a battle with us. That's what he's up to. Verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Send him my way. I'll teach him a thing or two, right? Verse 9, so Naaman went with his horses and chariots, and he stopped at the door of Elisha's house. But he can't go in, remember? Unclean, unclean. He's got leprosy. And so he just stands there. And he waits, and he waits, and he waits. I mean, this is the moment of truth. And nobody's coming out. And he's yelling, hello, hello. Maybe he's throwing pebbles at the window. Nobody's coming out. Finally, verse 10, look what it says. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him. So picture this scene in your mind. Here's Naaman, all of his gold, all of his silver, 10 incredible suits ready to pay his way. And this great prophet Elisha of Israel doesn't even bother to come out. In fact, Naaman doesn't even end up speaking to Elisha. He ends up speaking to his assistant. Look what it says in verse 10. Go wash yourself. So, you know, maybe finally the curtains pull back. The door opens. 
This little servant of Elisha comes, you know, up. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. And he turns around and runs back and shuts the door. And Naaman's standing there with his, with his face hanging out. Or depending on the stage of, of leprosy, his face falling off. We don't know. It could have gone either way, right? But he's just standing there. And you read in verse 11 that Naaman is just ticked off. He's beside himself. And it's because this is what he's saying. This is not the way I thought it would go down. This isn't the way I thought it was going to be. Verse 11. I thought... I thought it would go down this way. I thought that he would surely at least come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. In other words, I thought he would at least come out and do a little hocus pocus, abracadabra. I'd pay him, I'd go on my way, I'd head home healthy, ready to move forward with my life. This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I have leprosy. Go and dip, go take a swim in the Jordan River. What is he talking about? And then he gets a little uppity in verse 12. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could not I wash in them and be cleansed? In other words, why would I put my body, leprosy or not, in that stinky dirt? And I've been to the Jordan River. I've baptized people in the Jordan River. Why would I put my body in the muddy Jordan River when we have better rivers back home? See, this is like those of you who live in Kerry, you know, you're like, why in the world would I ever go to Fuquay to shop at Food Lion when I have Publix in Kerry? See, same kind of attitude going on here, right? So verse 12, he turned and went off in a rage. He's thinking, I'm going home. This makes no sense whatsoever. I show up with all this gold, all these suits, these, this nice, the silver. I've gone the extra mile. He wants me to duck in the Jordan River. Who does this redneck prophet think he is? So he's storming off. He turns the chariot. He's heading home. And as he's heading back toward air, one of his servants comes running up beside him and saying, you know, he finally slows down. What's going on? This is what it says in verse 11, 13. My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? If he would have said, you need to climb Mount Everest, and if you can get to the pinnacle of Mount Everest, your leprosy would be killed. Would you have done it? Yeah. If he would have said that you need to swim the English Channel, and you'll be hit, would you have swum the, would you have at least tried? Yeah. Then how much more when he tells you, wash and be clean? Think about it, Naaman. Before we go all the way back, I mean, the Jordan's right there. How long could it possibly take? Take a little swim. See what happens. And i got to be honest, I'm impressed with Naaman's teachable spirit, verse 14. So he went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Now let's be honest. If that had been us, our first response would have been, wow, that's awesome. How can I bottle this miracle water and sell it because there are all kind of people from leprosy. They would spend a fortune on this stuff, right? But we would miss the story. See, stick with me. This is all introduction, okay? It isn't about the water. It's not about the place. It's not about the details. It's about God working in the life of a diseased man. It's about Naaman doing exactly what God says through the prophet of Elisha that actually brings the change. 
It's when he acted on what God said. It's not knowing about it. It's not studying about it. It's not sitting around in your small group discussing it. It is doing it. It is being obedient. And understand, not until Naaman obeyed God, not until he actually took action, he applied what he knew, not till that moment was he made well. Not until that moment was his life changed. And understand something, he would have died a leper. Unless he had chosen to be obedient. Now that's all introduction. Let me show you the verse why I chose this story. Verse 15. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. They went back to Elisha's house. And he stood before him. See, he's cleansed now. Elisha wasn't even worried about it. He's right there face to face with him. He stood before him and said, Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. That's my God. I want to be on his team. Forget exploring God. This man, Naaman, he was pre-exploring God. But in one act of trust, God came through and proved himself. And all of a sudden, he went from exploring, pre-exploring, exploring right into beginning a relationship with God. But understand, for that to happen, he had to be obedient, and he had to do what God told him to do. He had to trust God. He couldn't just know it. He had to apply it if his life was going to be changed. You know, a few years ago, there was a young lady who showed up here one weekend, and she had a rather uh, messy life. And she came to Christ, and her parents came to me and said, man, she's going to go right back to that. She has no skills. She has no education. Do you have any jobs here at Hope? Well, that's back in the days where I actually had some power. And so I hired her. I hired her. And she came out of a background where she had been an exotic dancer and different things. And she came to my office on Monday. I said, okay, here, first of all, you got to get some, Friday, I said, I said you got to get some new clothes, okay? So, and... Uh, so, and then come in on Monday and be ready to go to work. And I called the ladies in the office and said, she's your project. Teach her how to answer the phone. Teach her how to do these things. So she came in. About two weeks after working with us, she, she came into my office one day. And she said, can I talk to you for just a second? And I said, sure. And she said, you know I live with a guy that I'm not married to, don't you? And I said, I know that. She said, did you know he's a drug dealer? I said, I did not know that. I did not know that. And she says, my question is this, if I stay in that relationship with him, if I continue to live there not married, am I going to lose my job here? And I said, this, this is what I told her. I said, God has cleansed you, and you are his child. Your sins are forgiven. And God has an incredible plan for your life, but you're going to have to decide at what level you're going to participate with him. And you participate in the process by obeying his word, doing what he says, and living life his way. If you choose not to participate, you'll still be saved. But there won't be much transformation. And it's no different than what Jesus told the woman in John chapter 8. Remember the woman caught in adultery and everybody was going to stone her? And Jesus said, hey, if you don't have any sin in your life, go ahead and throw the first stone, right? Well, they all walked away. And so you got Jesus, the son of God, and an adulteress. And Jesus, what did he say? I don't condemn you either. But then he said this, go and sin no more. I don't condemn you, but you got to get your act together. Things have to change if your life is going to change. Jesus talked about the importance of this truth 
as he was wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. By the way, the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus saying this. If you really trusted God, this is what you would do. If you really trusted God, this is how you would act. If you really trusted God, this is the way you would live your life. That's why he said things like, if somebody asks you to go a mile, go an extra mile. If somebody offends you, you just go ahead and forgive them before they even ask for forgiveness. You see somebody that's in need, be generous. Give them as much as you can. That was Jesus' way of saying, this is what life looks like if you really have confidence and trust that God is going to take care of you, that God is in control of your life, that God has your back. So understand if you ever read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 7, it's all about obedience and application. Here's what you would do. These are the decisions you would make if you really had trust and confidence in God. And this is how Jesus concludes his message in Matthew chapter 7. And if you grew up in Sunday school, you'll know this song, the wise man built. Okay, we're not going to sing it. But anyway, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. This is what Jesus said as he's wrapping it up, as he's bringing it to a big conclusion. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. In other words, Jesus is saying this. If you want God to really show up in your world, then you have to actually do these things that I've been talking about. You can't just walk away from this sermon and think, wow, my life is going to change because I showed up five weekends in a row and I listened to Jesus talk. Jesus said that doesn't work. And I say that because, you know, we have a tendency in our society to rate our spirituality on, I went to church this weekend. Or I never miss church. I never miss mass. I never miss confession. I never miss small group. We even tell people, you know, maybe your life would be better if you just went to church more consistently. You ever told somebody that? You know what Jesus is saying here? He says, you can show up for all of my sermons. You can take the best notes in the world. But if you walk away and you don't do any of this stuff that we talked about, it's not going to make any difference in your life whatsoever. Because the thing that's going to grow you up, that's going to change your life, isn't just hearing it. It's not even just understanding it. It's doing something with it. It's some point you've got to apply it at some point you've got to begin to live it and I'm telling you when you begin to apply God's word to your family to your marriage to your schooling to your future you know to your finances your money your morality your ethics God will suddenly come alive in your life and your trust in him goes up because all of a sudden you find out that he is trustworthy and you begin to see it God at work in your life and it's not that you didn't know this stuff Most of the time, you just weren't doing what you knew. Most of the time, you just aren't living it. Let's go back to Sandy and Buddy's little story earlier. 54 years of marriage, been in church. I am sure they have heard their whole life, Philippians chapter 2. Become a servant. Don't just look out for your own interests, but look out for the needs of others. But for some reason, the Holy Spirit connected that in their heart, and they went home and thought, wow, let's just try it. And when they tried it, their marriage was revitalized. And they're like, God's at work in our marriage. Whereas many of you said here, in your life, your marriage is an absolute mess. And you heard, put the needs of your spouse ahead of your own needs. And you know what your action was? That's just stupid. Nobody really lives that way. Plus, they don't deserve it. 
And you sit here this weekend, weeks later, guess what? Your marriage is still a mess. Well, in this parable, Jesus would say, Sandy and Buddy, wise. Do you know what he would call you? Fool. You're an idiot. You're a fool. I'm telling you what to do. You just don't want to do it. You got to get to the point where you say, God, (laughs) I'm going to do what you asked me to do in your word. Not because it makes sense, because it doesn't make any sense to me at all. Not because I've seen somebody else do it. Not because I think it will work. Not even because I think it maybe it will make my life better. I'm going to do this simply because you said to do it. And I'm telling you, when you get there, that's an expression of God, I trust you. I'm just going to trust you. And, God, and, and when you express trust in God and he comes through, all of a sudden you see God in your life. And you realize, wow, God actually is in my relationship. He's in my marriage. He's in my finances. And it's because now, see, you've invited God to show up in a tangible way in your life. But that will not happen until you begin to take this word and apply it and live it out. I mean, it's no different with exercise. I mean, don't get me wrong. Getting a gym membership is great. Buying workout clothes that match is great. Getting a bike for your house is great. Having the latest in running shoes is great. Reading great books on exercise, that's great. Talking to people about how important exercise is as you eat lunch at Bojangles, that's great. (laughs) Let me tell you something. Your knowledge of exercise is not going to do you one bit of good until eventually you begin to exercise. This is what Jesus is saying. If you want your Christianity to really impact your life, There's some stuff you're actually going to have to do. You're going to have to choose at what level you want to participate. So let me just be really, really clear and honest with you. If you're not doing something with what you hear on the weekends from God's word, church is just a hobby for you. And I don't know about you, but I think there are better hobbies out there than church, right? You might as well go to the beach. Not that you need my permission. You're going to go anywhere, right? But I'm telling you this, just being a consistent church attender is almost of no value whatsoever. I promise you, Jesus is not in heaven putting a gold star by your name every time you show up in church Think, oh, I am so impressed. He's there again this week, right? And I'll tell you why. Do you know why? There's no value in being in church. There's no value in just being in church. Jesus says it's obedience that makes the difference. Look what he says, verse 25. Talking about the wise man. Yeah, the rain came, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock. See, that's why Mike's wife, Tan, could say, yeah, I lost my husband. But man, God is good. Foundation, foundation. Jesus says, that's what it looks like to actually do the things that I teach you. You listen and do. And if you do that, you'll be wise. However, verse 26, everyone who hears, you just show up for church, or even worse, you just kind of watch online. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, here it is. You're a fool. It's like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. This is what Jesus was saying. You can have 100% attendance when it comes to church. You can be the best note taker in the world. And you can still be a fool. 
It's what you do with what you heard. Attendance will not make a difference. Knowledge will not make one bit of difference. It's obedience. It's application that makes the difference. So Jesus is saying here on the Sermon on the Mount, when you begin to apply what you've heard, that's what's going to change your home. When you begin to live this out, what you've heard, that's what's really going to begin to change your marriage and your finances, even your life. And notice how it ends in verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, when he had finished the whole Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And it's because, see, the teachers of the law, the teachers of the first century taught in the context Here's some more knowledge you need to know. Here's something you didn't know. Here's something Isaiah said you've never known before. Here's something Jeremiah said you've never heard before. Here's something Amos said we've never talked about before. It was all about knowledge. Jesus came along and said, here's a little bit of knowledge you need to know. Now let me tell you what that looks like in your life. It means you forgive. It means you go the second mile. It means you do things like give generously. In other words, if you want your life to be different, you can't just listen, you got to do. And when you do, it's an expression of your confidence in God. It's saying this, God, within the context of what I know, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But I have so much trust in you, I'm going to obey you and do what you say. And I'm telling you, when you do that, your faith intersects with God's faithfulness and he's going to come alive in your life let me just tell you a little silly story in mine and laura's life as we were heading through the fall we knew the unleashed campaign was coming and we prayed about it and god god laid this number on our heart and it was a little overwhelming because god basically challenged us to double our giving over the next two years during unleashed and i'm not gonna lie to you we're already pretty generous to hope community church so when we both without even talking when we both began to talk and said this is what god's laid on our heart we knew we had to do that so we had to begin to think how are we going to do that I mean, we don't have that kind of money. Where are we going to trim back? Where are we going to cut back? Well, we won't travel as much. We won't do this. We won't do that. But one of the things we've wanted to do in our house for about three years is replace the front door. We had just this ugly front door. And Laura wanted to get a mahogany front door with some pretty beveled glass. And we started pricing these things. It's like, oh. And as much as we wanted it, this is what we decided. Well, we're not going to reach that goal we committed and get a front door. So we just let the front door go away. About three weeks ago, my nephew calls me who's in construction. He says, Uncle Mike, I just took out two of the most beautiful mahogany front doors out of a house. I don't know why the guy didn't want them. It's got a couple of scratches on them. But if you want them, and he owed me a little bit of money, if you want them, I'll come put them in for you, and I'll restain them, and I'll refinish them, and they'll look brand new. And this morning, I got up and looked at my brand new varnished mahogany doors that didn't cost me a penny. And you know what it reminded me of? You trust God. You're obedient. You do what he says. And you make decisions like that if you really trust. And I'm not going to say if, if you give that way that God's going to give you something. I'm just saying, that's just a, I, I've seen it in so many areas of life. God, this makes no sense to me whatsoever. <laughs> Nobody would tell me to do life this way. But if this is what you want me to do, I'm just going to do it because I believe you got my back. See, that's why as a church we are application crazy. 
We want to make sure that our kids all the way through the adults know what to do with what they've heard, and it's because it's the doing that's going to actually make the difference in your life. That's where the change, that's where the transformation begins to take place, and that's where your trust in God begins to grow. And as it grows, you begin to move. Would you bow with me? Let me just ask you, I'll just ask you point blank. What are you not trusting God? What area of your life? Are you trusting Him with your finances? <laughs> I would just tell you, you'll never experience financial peace until you put God first in your finances. You go ahead and do it your way. I promise you. I promise you. Is it your marriage? It's still a big mess because we just went through a marriage series and you heard that like, yeah, that sounds great in theory, but I'm not going to try it. Is it your business practices? Is it the morals of your life? There's an old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make, it, make him drink. I can sit up here every weekend and point you to the truth. You can go to a small group and learn the truth. We can point you to the truth. But at some point, you have to decide, do I want to participate with God and apply it? You know what Jesus said? You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But it will only set you free if you apply it to your life. Just knowing it will never make any difference. Just knowing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. That's great to know. But if you never apply it to your life, when you die, you'll go to hell. To be blunt. The truth will set you free, but you've got to appropriate it into your life. God, give us the courage to do the right thing. To make the hard choices. To step out in faith when it makes no logical sense whatsoever. Simply because it's what your word tells us to do. And we'll see our trust in you go up. And we'll see our relationship with you deepen. And in the process, we will become the person that you created us to be. We will become the person when it seems like everything around us is falling apart but we will be on a foundation that is so firm where we say, yeah, <laughs> but God's just got a way of doing stuff in situations like this, so I'm just going to wait because God is in control of my life. That's where we want to get to. In your name we pray, amen.